Morning. All right, good. We're doing good today. That was excellent. Right there in the middle, gold star. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Revelation. Chapter 9. going to read verses 13 through 21. And um, next couple of weeks, we will move into chapters 10 and 11, which is uh, kind of a break in the drama, uh, but we continue with the trumpet judgments today. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. When the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we want to confess that apart from your grace, this is us. This is me. Lord, we are idolaters. Even this week, those of us who are Christians, we are committing idolatry, worshiping people, things instead of you. And we ask your forgiveness. We thank you for the absolution that we have in Jesus Christ, that all of our idolatry, all of our demon worship, all of our theft, murder, sexual immorality, all of it, Lord Jesus, you took upon yourself and became sin. The one who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. We thank you, Lord, that we stand forgiven, righteous, with a hope and a future in you today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts, that, our dis- that, that just distraction would be limited, that whatever we're thinking about as we walked in the door today, Lord, we would let it go, 
and we would focus on what you have to say to us. You did not call us here for no reason. You called us here for a purpose this morning. I don't know what that is for, for everyone individually, but I know that you have a purpose. So may my words and my thoughts and my heart be pleasing in your sight, and may, Holy Spirit, you speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. As we finish in the trumpets, the trumpet sounds, God releases a judgment on the earth. These are judgments, warnings. The first four, you remember, were against nature. So it's things happening on the earth, limited, but things happening on the earth with food supply and water and and famine and a number of things that are against nature, but of course affect us. The fifth and sixth trumpet are against people directly. This is God judging the wicked directly, unbelievers. And things are escalating. Whereas if you look back, you're not allowed to kill people, now people are dying. Things are escalating. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what John sees, particularly the idolatry that human beings just will not give up. But I want to remind you as we're kind of in judgment mode here, okay, we're in like you know, judgment, judgment, judgment. I want to remind you of where we're going. I don't want you to lose sight of the forest because we're in the trees. I want you to remember where we're headed in Revelation. We're not headed for a tragic ending. We're not headed for doom and gloom. Okay, we associate that so much with this book, and I hope that we're like bleeding that out of you. That that is not what this book is about. We should never say as Christians, oh no, what's going to happen? We know what's going to happen because we're headed for glory. Chapter 21, chapter 22, the end of the world and the beginning of the new world. (coughs) That's where we're headed. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? We're walking, even if it feels slow at times, toward the promised land. (laughs) That's where we're headed. Life with God forever. Listen, Revelation does not end in a minor key. It's not a lament. It's not a country song. Okay? It ends in a major triumphant hallelujah chorus. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. So no matter what hard thing happened in your life this week, no matter what terrible thing you read about in the news, and there's plenty of those, you know the end of the story because God has told you. You know. You know. So don't get bogged down in in what you hear out there, what your own heart tells you, even in some of these difficult things in the middle of this book. We're going to glory, and we're almost there. We're almost home. It's important. It's so important. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's where we're going. Life with God forever. Isn't it amazing that God wants to be with you forever? I mean, just stop and think about that. Like, 
I think there's probably only one person I could even contemplate that with, life together forever, Carrie. Now, I know she loves me, but she might have to think about that, life forever with Justin. How long do I have to think it over? Like, I love the kids, love you kids, but life together with one person forever, and yet this is what God is saying to you. I want to be with you forever. Some of you feel like God just basically tolerates you. You know, he keeps his distance. All right, well, if I have to, I mean, you know, I guess Jesus died for him, so I got to be with him forever. No, he sent Jesus to die for you so that he would be with you in a home he's creating for you. We call it the new creation. That's how much he loves you. You have to believe it or work at believing it because we feel like God just tolerates us. How could he really love me? He does. Friends, this is what eternal life is. It's life with God, in God, through God, for God. And it begins the moment you make Jesus the center of your life. If you haven't committed your life to Jesus, I would just say you're missing out. You're missing out on the best. You're missing out on what you were made for. And God wants to change that today. He doesn't want you living in a, a living death, which is what you're living if you're not in Christ, if you're not following Jesus. He wants you with him. He wants to give you a hope and a future. He wants the end of this book to be your future because if, if you haven't repented and believed in Jesus, that's not true for you. Chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, that's your future. But God doesn't want that. That's why we preach. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we evangelize. That's why we love people. That's why we show hospitality. We want everyone, as many as possible, to be with us, with God forever. You got to think about it every day. You got to think about it every day or else you will get driven down to despair, down to the nub. You got to think about where we're headed. And until then, Jesus has to do some hard stuff. We're reading about it. Things that must happen, God tells us, need to happen before we get to the golden shore. So we press on. Do you believe God is speaking to us? Do you believe God is speaking to us through His Word? Do you believe it? I'm going to walk through the text, and then we're going to talk about the deception of idolatry, one of the, the enemy's great deceptions, and, and we see it here in the text. So look at verse 13 with me. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice, this is probably an angel, from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So the voice is coming from God's immediate presence. The four horns are the four corners of the altar of incense. So they signify God's strength, God's power. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, most agree that good angels are not bound. That is language typically reserved for Satan or demons. So I think we would say these are demons bound, now being released. God allowing them to do what they already want to do, which is to deceive and kill. 
So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Pause. Things are escalating. You need to catch that. Fifth trumpet, demons are allowed to hurt people but not kill. Now they're killing people. And yet, an emphasis here on God being in complete control. From the year to the month to the day down to the very hour, no one is dying by accident. No one dies by accident. That should comfort you. Let me say this without any qualification. It is God's right to take people out of this world whenever and however he chooses. Roughly 330,000 people die every day. All of them sinners. All of them, in the end, receiving what they deserve. All of them having lived far longer than they deserved as sinners. That's God's mercy. And by his grace, amazing grace, a lot of them go to heaven every day. Good to remember that, I think, when we get a little uppity with God when it comes to death. How could you do this? How could you take this person from me? Why now? It doesn't diminish the pain and the hurt that comes when we lose someone. There's a good, a good anger at death. It's an enemy. It's not good. That anger goes bad when we direct it toward God. How could you do this to me? We were watching uh, the new Little Women movie. Have you seen this? Uh, this week for, well, if you have girls, maybe you have it. Maybe the you know, boy families you haven't. It's a great movie. We were watching it for Piper's birthday. And, and in the story, uh, uh, Beth, one of the sisters, is dying. And her sister Joe is at the bedside with her. And um, she says, Beth, you're going to get better. Father's going to get better. We're all going to be together soon. And Beth says, we can't stop God's will. And Joe says, God hasn't met my will yet. What Joe wills shall be done. I appreciate that. I appreciate her, you know, wanting to fight. But listen to me. When it comes to a battle of wills, God is undefeated. He has never lost. So we need to remember that. It, it, raging against God because we don't like a decision that he's made is not going to change anything. It's only going to harm us. Good anger towards death, bad anger when it's toward God. Remember, if you had God's, if you knew everything that God knows, if you had the character that God has, you would make the exact same decisions that he makes. Down to the very day and hour when he chooses to take people out of this world, you would make the same decision. That's helpful when our heart fights the Lord. Why are you doing this? How could you do this? It's like, it doesn't feel fair. 
and we, we put that to death as much as it's real, and we choose to trust a God who is wise. If I were in his shoes, for mysterious reasons to us, I would do the same thing. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Without giving you a long explanation, I think that is just symbolic for an innumerable number. It's a lot. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. So this is, these are vicious. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and, and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. These demons are killing the ungodly by all means. Illness, tragedy, and that's what they want because if an unbeliever dies, their soul is locked into eternal torment. A demon looks at that as a success story. Okay? They feel like they won. So they want to torment you. They want to deceive you unto death. And, and one of their great weapons is deception. <clears throat> I think the emphasis here on, on the mouth, what's coming out of the mouth of the demons, fire, smoke, sulfur, is deception. False teaching, it's demonic. When we talk about false teaching, this is important, we're not talking about sincere errors that Christians or churches may make. We are talking about teaching that strikes at the heart of the gospel. We, we would call it heresy is one way to say it. This is leading people astray intentionally into idolatry. Not just, oh, you know, we, we think we should just baptize believers and you think we should baptize babies. That's not what we're talking about. It's dangerous. Like a, a snake is dangerous. A venomous snake. The, as reading this, it reminded me of growing up in Arizona. Uh, you had to keep your eyes open. I remember one night I came home from wherever I was and I walking up to the back door and I get about two feet away from the door, and in the corner is a rattlesnake. Now, when I saw that, I did not kneel down and pet it. I did not take another step forward. I did not treat it casually. I stepped back slowly, slowly as it's doing its thing. I think Christians often are far too casual when it comes to false teaching. This really can't hurt me that much. You're far more casual with false teaching than you are a rattlesnake. You just think, well, you know, I saw it on Amazon's top 20 religion books list. Can't be that bad. My friend who I know, and she, she gave it to me, he gave it to me. I see Bible verses in it. What's the problem? And yet, 
that often is the most dangerous kind of false teaching, one that's, that, that is closest to the truth, and yet in a very fundamental and significant way is off. And you have to be discerning. And if you don't feel like you are, you feel, you know, you, I don't know. I don't know what's good and bad. I really don't know. That's okay. Find someone who does. Find a pastor. Find an elder. Find a trusted, godly friend that you can say, hey, is this solid? Is this good? Is this really biblical? Because I don't really know anything about this person. I just, somebody handed me the book. That happens all the time. And this is how demons work. They're trying to get bad teaching into your hearts and minds, often through, you know, a very subtle, simple, uh, uh, deceptive way. And we just kind of curl up next to the snake without even really knowing it. It's just good to be aware this is happening. This is happening. And you are the target. People are the target. This is why we do Sunday school. This is why we teach, 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 teach. It's not because we like to hear ourselves talk, okay? It's not because it's like, you know, the most exciting, fun thing ever to do. We want you to go to heaven. We don't want you deceived because there is deception operating in the world. And we just need to be aware of that. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. To me, this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And but... For the grace of God go I. Listen, it wouldn't matter how many warnings I received. um, Unless God intervened and changed my heart, I would never repent. I could live for a thousand years. It wouldn't matter. It would not matter. Judgment after judgment after judgment, warning after warning, God with a megaphone trying to get my attention. Unless God changed my heart, I would never repent. And so we just humbly say, thank you, Lord. I don't know why you chose me, but I'm grateful you did. This is humanity left to themselves. And where we all would be, unless God had said, I choose you. I love you. I'm going to work in your life. If you're not sure he has yet, ask him to. Just ask him. When you knock on a door with God, he opens. When you seek, you find. I want to spend some time helping you with the connection between sin, idolatry, and demons. John makes that connection. Follow the logic here. They don't repent of their sin because they refuse to give up idols, which is worshiping demons. That's the problem. It's deeper than the surface level of sin. We see that manifest. 
surface level sin. What's, going, what's the sin under the sin? What's going on? It's devotion to an idol. It's worship of a demon. According to the Bible, all sin is the result of idolatry. Did you know that? You break the first commandment before you break all the rest. You shall have no other gods before me. You can't commit adultery. You can't steal, lie, unless you break the first commandment. And behind every idol is demonic power. Deuteronomy 32, 17. God says, Israel sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently. So, when you make a sacrifice to an idol, and we're going to talk about that, you sacrifice to a demon. That is what is behind the idol. 1 Corinthians 10.20. If you want to understand idolatry, this week, read 1 Corinthians 10. Very helpful. Paul is answering the question, is an idol anything? And what does he say? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, so when they're practicing idolatry, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So idolatry is participation with demons. Just as worship is participation with God. Receiving the Lord's Supper is, is contextually what he's talking about, is participation with God. So idolatry is demonic. It's deceptive, and it's the lie that if you trust something or someone other than God, life will get better. Life will get better. So I want to ask some questions and then answer them. First, what is an idol? What is an idol? <clears throat> An idol is anything you love or trust more than God. An idol is anything you love or trust more than God. An idol is anything you ask to give you what only God can. Meaning, significance, security, identity, redemption. An, identity is, an idol is usually a, a, a good thing we turn into a God thing. And so it becomes a bad thing. Anytime you turn a good thing into a God, it becomes a bad thing. It's no longer good. So lurking underneath all of our individual sins is devotion to an idol. And folks, it can literally be anything. <laughs> it can literally be anything. Spouse, kids, your family, health, your appearance, your grade point average, your education, politics, a nice home, lifestyle, sex, Money, sports, toys, doctrinal accuracy, morality. Oh, yeah, you bet. Anything that promises to give you something you want. And what do we want? Control, approval, power, security, comfort. Pleasure, success. Demons know that you want those things, and they will give them to you through an idol, happily. So do, do you see the connection? Okay. Do you see how 
obedient children, as good as that can be, can, can provide you with an idol and satisfy an idol of control. You want to be in control, and so I'm going to make my kids obedient no matter what it takes. It's not for God. It's for you. Do you see how a nice home and a comfortable lifestyle can satisfy an idol of comfort? I just want to be comfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable. So how am I going to get that? Well, I want to have a nice home. I want to have a nice car. I want to have air conditioning and heat that works. Now, are any of those bad things? No. Do you see how your appearance or your job can satisfy an, an, an idol of approval and success that you're thought well of? So it's a means to get the root idol that is not God. It's a false God. Idols say, I'll give you what you want, but I want something in return. They always demand sacrifices. Do not doubt me. They demand blood. So an idol says, I will give you what you want, at least you know the appearance of what you want, what you think you want. But you need to sacrifice something in your life and lay it down on the altar before me. Now, you may not do that physically with an animal or something like that, but you do it in your life. You make sacrifices, and I, I see it played out in people's lives. I see men want power and success in their careers so badly they're willing to sacrifice their families. They overwork, they travel all the time, putting themselves in front of great sexual temptation, just on the road, in hotels. Um, they barely see their kids, their, their marriage becomes distant, but they got the sale. They got the promotion. Paid a heavy price. Was it worth it? Did it really satisfy you to get that? job offer when your family's destroyed. You made a sacrifice to an idol. I see it in young ladies who want intimacy so badly, they're willing to sacrifice their bodies and their purity on the altar of half-baked intimacy. They give themselves up to men who haven't committed to them, don't love them, so they can just, just get a little bit of that intimacy that they want, that emotional connection. You've paid a high price. And all you're left with is pain and regret for those things the rest of your life. Was it worth it? Did the idol really satisfy? I've seen it in moms who want control over their family. They, they want to be the tiger mom. They want to be in charge. They want control. And so they're willing to sacrifice healthy relationships with their kids, their health, hobbies, friendships, even the priority of loving their husband because they just want to be in charge. They want to run stuff. They want everyone doing what they want them to do. And maybe they get a measure of that. Maybe they get some, some, some kind of control. Was it worth it? 
Did that bring you deep peace? An idol can never deliver what it promises. Only God can. And some of you know that because you've lived it. That's an idol. What does an idol do to you? What does an idol do to you? Simply put, when you worship an idol, you become like it, which is to say lifeless, dead, sucks the life out of you. Psalm 115 says, those who make them idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. Whatever you revere, you will resemble. Whatever you love, you will begin to look like. Tracking with that? If it's Jesus, you will become like Jesus. If you love Jesus, you will begin to look like Jesus. Beholding His glory transforms you into His image. But if it's a dead, dumb, demonic idol, you will become like that. If that's what you revere, you will become like it. Idols also lie to you. They promise blessing for your worship, but they only and always deliver curses. When you pursue them, all they can deliver is ruin and destruction. And young people, I need you to hear that. Do not doubt me. I mean, we're all going to give in to this temptation to some degree, but you don't have to, okay? If you have the Holy Spirit, you don't have to. Be warned. It's not going to work. It's not going to deliver. It, it, It never has. It never will. I read an account of a Christian woman who was a a really gifted musician, and what she wanted most in life was her parents' approval. That was her idol, and she cultivated it at a young age. She wanted to please. Some of you have children like this. They want to please you no matter what, and sadly, her parents fed the idol. They cultivated it because love, affection was given for success, and it was withheld for failure coldness, criticism when you failed. She sacrificed a lot. She sacrificed a balanced life to pursue being a professional musician, not to serve people with good music, but in the end, to hear the benediction of her mom and dad. Well done. That's what she craved. That's what she wanted. That's why she was doing it. But she didn't get it because she was good, not great. She didn't rise to the top of her profession. She was a disappointment, at least relative to what she felt they expected. And she knew that. And so the blessing that was promised to her became a curse. She started to experience that curse. She checked herself into a psychiatric institution for devastating depression and anxiety. Began to have all sorts of mental health issues. This is the curse of an idol. She began to be dependent on medication to help manage the symptoms. And and it did manage the symptoms, but it didn't get to the root. It was a worship problem. It's always a worship problem. She was worshiping an idol and not Jesus. Musical success was the, the means to get it. It was just the means to get the approval that she felt she had to have. And only when she discovered the gospel did depression, anxiety start to lift. Because she heard the news that God loves her 
not based on what she must do or can do, but because of what Jesus has done. You see how freeing that is? Oh, I have the approval of the God of the universe fully, unconditionally, completely. I can never lose it because what Jesus did is finished for me. I don't have to chase mom and dad's approval. I have approval from someone greater than them. I cannot lose it. It cannot be taken from me. I can never be separated from his love. That is freeing. That is how you defeat an idol. And no wonder she started to feel better. Because she was now worshiping Jesus and not her parents. Friends, the gospel is the only way out. It's the only identity, the only approval, the only fulfillment that is secure. That's it. How do you find them? How do you find idols? You know, we tend to think of idols in terms of like golden calves, little statues with lots of arms and then candles around them and like some produce laid in front of them, maybe a dead chicken or two. That's how we tend to think of idols, but that's not always the case. People in, uh, we look at Africa and, and Asia and we, we, we think, man, it's weird. All these idols. Uh, it's so primitive and pagan. You people are just like idolaters. And they're like, the Christians there, we're never sending our kids to America because it's so full of idols. So we need, it's easy to recognize idols in someone else's culture, a little statue. It's harder to recognize, recognize them in your own because you're living with them. It's the air you breathe. And Satan has always sold the same merchandise. He just rebrands it, repackages it. This is what he does. So how do we find them? The father says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, 1 John 5. How do we obey that? A few questions to ask to root out the idols in your life. What do you want or need or love most? What can you not live without? I just couldn't live without fill in the blank. Probably dealing with an idol if it's not, if, if the blank is not filled in with Jesus. <laughs> Who or what do you fear most? With an idol, people or circumstances get really big and God gets really small. You fear something. It's like a bomb that's going to go off in your life, and you have to do something to stop it. You have to make sure this doesn't happen. So what do you do? Instead of maybe praying about it, trusting God, you turn to an idol. Control. I'm going to get in control here. I'm going to, I'm going to grab this thing so tight it never happens. Another question. What is your heaven and what is your hell? Everyone has a working conception of those things, and you know because it's where your thoughts drift to. It's what you daydream about. It's what keeps you up at night, and you need a Savior to rescue you from that hell and give you that heaven. And often we turn to idols as functional false saviors to give it to us. I just, I don't want this to happen. Save me from it. I really want this to happen. Give it to me. 
You know you're dealing with an idol when you'll sin to get it, lie, cheat, steal, control, compromise, or when you sin when you don't get it. So what makes you really angry? What makes you so down in despair you can barely get out of bed? You might be dealing with an idol. And maybe you've never asked those questions before. Maybe this is all new to you. You never thought about idolatry. That's okay. But now's the time to start because they'll ruin your life. They'll ruin your life. Demons know that. Here's the hard part, guys. These are usually good things. That's why it's such a good deception. We wouldn't fall for it if they weren't good things. No one has made an idol out of getting in a car accident. No one has made an idol out of having bratty children. No one has made an idol of having a bad marriage. I just want that so much to be fighting with my spouse all the time. No one makes idols out of bad things. We make them out of good things. They're good things. Clean house, good spouse, savings account, well-funded retirement. Obedient children. You're saying I shouldn't want those things? No. Those are good things. That's why we make them gods. We don't make bad things God. We make good things gods. And demons are happy to give them to you. Jesus wants to destroy them. He wants to help you destroy them. So how do you destroy an idol? Last question. It's pretty simple. Realize, repent, and replace. Realize, repent, and replace. When you find an idol, I got to be on a test. I had a total meltdown. Mm, probably an idol, okay? You realize it, you repent of it, and you replace it. Father, in my pride, I worshiped grades and the success and approval they would give me that I wanted instead of you. That's stupid. It's wrong. Please forgive me. Please help me to worship you, to make you my treasure. So you have to replace. You can't just say, stop, stop worshiping that. Stop wanting to get an A on everything. You have to replace it with, I love Jesus more than the A. I trust him more than the A. I want to obey him more than I want that. You have to believe that he died for that sin in particular. You have to. And some of you, that's hard because the sin is big or it's persistent. Repentance means turning in faith to believe that, yes, Jesus died for that sin. Yes, Jesus is your righteousness, not you. So, Lord, help me to work hard at school for your glory, not my own. It's always a worship issue. Always. Demons don't care what you worship as long as it's not the triune God. They don't care. So fleeing idolatry means from turning, turning from worshiping sexual pleasure to worshiping Jesus. Turning from worshiping a good house to worshiping Jesus. From a good job to Jesus. From beauty to Jesus. From a comfy chair and a tall beer to worshiping Jesus. Are those bad things? No. Maybe one of the pinnacles of creation is a comfy chair and a tall beer. 
but you can't worship it. You won't enjoy it truly as it's meant to be enjoyed as a good thing until you make Jesus the greatest thing. That's how you enjoy the goodness of creation. It's Jesus is number one. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the greatest thing. Now this good thing, but secondary thing, I can actually receive as a gift and say thank you. Not worship demons. Not make it an idol that ruins my life. Because I can tell you, I've seen many people ruin their lives and sacrifice everything for a comfy chair and a tall beer. Praise God, Jesus is not in your life to give you your idols. He loves you too much. He's in your life to save you from your idols, if you would ask him. He's really good at it. It's kind of what he does. So if we will humble ourselves and say, show me, Lord. Show me the idolatry in my life. Help me to turn from it and to worship you. He will. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for being the idol slayer, the sin killer, the slavery deliverer. For Lord, once we who are in Christ were slaves to worshiping demons, to worshiping idols. But now, by the grace of God, we have been set free. I pray you'd be setting people free today, right now. Lord, that we would deal honestly, not just with the sin at the surface, but what's underneath it. Why do we do it? What do we want? Help us to pull the weed out by the root so it does not grow back. In the power of Jesus' name we ask. Amen.